4.67 million. That's the number of total jobs in New York City, just 7 tenths of a percent shy of employment pre-pandemic. However, some industries, subpopulations, and parts of the city are faring better than others. In service to strengthening the economy, each year, the New York City Economic Development Corporation spends $1 billion and New York City provides another $2 billion in tax breaks. Hello, I'm Andrew Ryan, the president of the Citizens Budget Commission, and thanks for joining us for this episode of What's the Data Point, which again will feature a recording of one of our live events. Today, we hear from the president and CEO of the New York City Economic Development Corporation, Andrew Kimball. These are certainly interesting and challenging times. On one hand, we've essentially exited the pandemic, the economy is stable, employment is generally strong, and tourism continues to strengthen. But challenges remain. Our economy is undergoing transformation. The restructuring of work, remote work, artificial intelligence will all affect what jobs we have, what skills we'll need, and of course, the economic mix of our business districts and commercial real estate. And now, New York City faces approximate humanitarian service and fiscal challenge with the influx of new immigrants and asylum seekers. While the mayor rightly calls for budget savings to address the city's massive gaps, we know that one of the best remedies to fiscal problems is economic growth. Fortunately, Mayor Adams has put an experienced hand at the helm of EDC. Since the beginning of the administration, Andrew Kimball has led EDC's work to grow in an innovative and inclusive economy. But before this, he was CEO of Industry City, where he grew thousands of jobs and hundreds of businesses. He was also president and CEO of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Earlier in his career, he was director of operations for NYC 2012 to bring the Olympic Games to New York City and vice president of the New York Public Library. He's been on numerous boards, but of course for us, most importantly, he was a CBC trustee. So stay tuned as President Kimball and I talk about the administration's strategy, projects ranging from Willits Point to Spark Hips Bay, the green economy, offshore wind, and of course, soccer and ferries and more. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And until next time, when you hear a public official talk about a policy, a program, or a proposal, always remember to ask, what's the data point? So, welcome. You're speaking a lot this month. We're all into the numbers. How many, how many breakfast speeches do you have to give this month? <laughs> I, I am on the circuit, uh, but I think, as you said, so important now to be driving economic development of today and of the future. And so we've got to be getting the message out about what we're doing, and there are enormous opportunities, and it's really important. I really appreciated what you said about the civic fabric of the city and people who really care and get it, and Dick Ravitch was obviously at, at the top of that, but... He is reflected in all the people in this room, and I've worked with so many people in this room over the last 25 years, and it's, it's inspiring to be here. I'm really honored. Well, thanks. You know, I, I get inspired, and I love talking to our trustees in the community every day. So we'll get into some projects. You're doing a lot of projects. Let's talk strategy, if we can helicopter up first, and including how our current economic context, you know, coming out of the pandemic, we talked about remote work, housing affordability <clears throat> challenges, out-migration out migration. Tell us about your strategy and how it is tailored to our time. Yeah, well, so there are a lot of challenges. Uh, two years ago when the administration started, I would have said it's, it's coming back from COVID, right? We lost a million jobs, more, more than any other city anywhere else. We still had a long way to go when the mayor got here. Uh, about four months in, he released a jobs blueprint with the deputy mayor and EDC, uh, and the fact is it's working. Um, we've grown 255,000 jobs over the last year and a half. That's more than Dallas and Miami combined. 
Um, we have the highest workforce participation rate since 1976. That's when they started collecting that data. People are getting back in the game uh, in a very, very significant way. Uh, tourism is way up. Uh, people are back on the subways. A lot of that is because crime is under control. You know, when I started, and I travel nationally, I travel internationally, uh, although not a lot, um, but I heard when I started two big issues for New York, crime, housing. Now I don't hear about crime. I hear about housing. We'll talk more about that. So in that jobs blueprint, uh, the mayor and the deputy mayor also identified the fact that we needed a strategy to deal with our commercial course, as you say. Deal with the reality that while people are coming back and people are back up another 11% uh, over the last year in the office, um, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, you see it, you feel it. Mondays and Fridays, still tough, so the world has changed a little bit. Um, we are in a global competition now for which city, whether it's New York, London, Paris, Singapore, same competition we've been in for 20 years, but who is going to respond to this new reality uh, of work from home and the fact that uh, our commercial cores need to be more live, work, learn, and play. And so the mayor and the governor, and this is a real narrative about this mayor's success, is partnership with the governor on so many different fronts, really first time in my 30 years of economic development where I've <clears throat> seen anything like this, came out with the new New York report that called for uh, a new approach, um, that kind of 24-7 dynamism uh, for our commercial cores. And so at the center of that new New York plan was converting 20 to 30 million square feet from commercial to residential, upgrading commercial where we can to A, uh, buildings, um, because that's what uh, the users are demanding, building out our public realm, really focusing on, um, on commercial cores outside of uh, Manhattan. So think about Morris Park in the Bronx, think about Jamaica in Queens, think about Broadway Junction uh, in Brooklyn. Um, a lot of these things have relied at some level on help from our friends in the state legislature, um, none of which has been forthcoming yet. I am still hopeful, but there is a lot that we can do on our own, and we are taking action there. So that's challenge number two. Challenge number three, I would say, just to go back to housing, like this is an existential challenge for us. Like I am not a housing guy. We've got some great people on our team who are, but um, this is the challenge of our time. Um, we are just not meeting the demand. Uh, we've created way more jobs than we have housing. Uh, and then finally, on the challenge front, I would say two other things, and, and this came out in the jobs report, is you know the mayor made it clear, we gotta get back those million jobs. We will pass that number, we're within 3,000 jobs of the million jobs back. We'll get there, we wanna blow past that, but we've got to create a more equitable and inclusive economy around those innovation sectors. And I know you'll ask me about that, what those sectors are, so I won't say them now, but that um, has entrepreneurs and workers that reflect the demographics of the city. And I say that not just because it is the right thing from an equity point of view, but from a competitive standpoint for New York. Um, there's some cities that are competing hard on that front. Um, it's part of the reason young people want to be in Atlanta is the enormous diversity there and the fact that black and brown folks are doing much better on an entrepreneurial front. We've got to do better in New York City in that area. The last challenge I would say are things, crises we don't know about when we come in and every administration has them and obviously the asylum seeker crisis is a big one today. 
There was a lot in there. Thanks. Thanks. I can keep going if you want. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll try to steer a little and, and, and help that. Um, so we, we talked about commercial cores. You talked about within Manhattan and, and outside. Obviously, people are rightly concerned about the demand for commercial office space. We're down. Oh, by the way, so I, I, I commend, because I was looking for stats back. So the New York City economic snapshot um, that, that Andrew's uh, shop puts out every month. I do, I do note that we are, as you say, down two-tenths of one, uh, of one percent from uh, pre, pre-pandemic, although as, as, you know, getting blown away by Miami, Atlanta, Houston, you know, Sunbelt stuff, so there's some to go. Um, yeah, but I, I also would, noted- I would contest the blown away comment. But I'm sorry? I would contest the blown away. I think we're holding our own. Okay, good. Um, and- but you know, here we have the office vacancy rate, and this is you know August fourteen percent. We know that this is main lease is not the sublease; it's probably another three, four, five percent in that. Um, but almost double what it was pre-pandemic. So obviously, people are concerned about commercial office space. So you're right to point it out. Um, people are concerned on the revenue front. I will also say, half-empty buildings and zombie buildings are not a good signal that we are growing. So this is uh, very, very important. Tell us what EDC is doing before we go to the city strategy. I know you have the MCOR um, program. Maybe you start there. Well, let me tell you about what the administration is doing in absence of the state legislature acting on a new 421A program or removing the 12FAR cap or facilitating conversions from office to residential, which is a lot. So um, there are things that we can do at the local level on office conversion and the mayor and um, my colleague Dan Gorodnik at, at City Planning is doing a fantastic job, has a program around City of Yes that's going to drive uh, a rezoning at the local level. It's going to take a little bit longer than we wanted, probably a year, year and a half, uh, but it will facilitate some of those, um, some of those, commercial, conver- some of those commercial conversions to residential. Again, you know, you got a hundred million square feet vacant. We hope that's twenty to thirty million square feet that becomes homes for people, uh, housing up to forty thousand New Yorkers. We have an accelerator in place now uh, because there are some parts of the city uh, that can be converted today, and you've seen a lot of that mm-hmm. in Lower Manhattan. We want to accelerate that. Obviously, again, in absence of four twenty one A, all of these things become. Uh, more challenging. What is EDC doing alone with its tools? So we run the IDA uh, and build programs, and under the IDA, we rolled out a program called MCOR, again, recognizing that uh, young people want uh, a more dynamic, um, first-class experience, um, and and others who are coming back to work. Otherwise, they just want to sit at home, it seems. So um, under MCOR, we are targeting buildings pre-2000 south of 59th Street, um, underperforming B and C buildings where landlords are willing to invest 75% of the assessed value, target the sectors that we care about, bring accelerators, incubators in the sectors we care about, uh, add amenities such as childcare, have a dynamic approach to the ground plane, not just the latest, um, you know, uh, national retail outlet like a Rite Aid. Like we want interesting, dynamic, interactive retail. If any of you have been out to Industry City, I think you've experienced that um, at the base of the building. Um, And if you do all those things, we will lock in your taxes for the next 20 years. Um, So there are, there is a lot of interest. We've got some great applications in front of us. We hope to do about 10 million square feet of conversions. Again, look, this is 
small in the grand scheme of the challenge, but we think it's a real shot in the arm, um, particularly at a moment when financing is difficult, right? Mm -hmm. High interest rates, I think they're getting stabilized. We hope we can come out of this. There's a lot of institutional money out there that wants to invest. Um, so we're excited about that program. So you said there's 100 million square feet. Empty 10 million of that you're hoping. I mean, I'm not sure if those are equivalent exactly numbers, but 10 million you're hoping on this. Look, if you look at grant scheme, 20 to 30 million should be converted to residential right away. If we can upgrade 10 million of commercial, like you are on your way mm -hmm. to a strong recovery and addressing the challenge of the core, you also have to deal with things like public realm, where there's an enormous amount of investment uh, happening right now. This is the first mayor to have a public realm officer. Um, ya Ting Lu is doing a fantastic job. We're working very closely with her, and so you have seen some of that on Broadway. Uh, we've got a plan now we're working through with an enormous number of stakeholders to transform um, the streets on Fifth Avenue between the library and the park. Um, again, this isn't just Manhattan, so we're doing this in Broadway Junction, we're doing this in Morris Park, we're doing this in Jamaica. All of these things matter. Let's move to the sector, sector strategy. I mean, there is a legitimate critique that says, you know, trying to pick winners is a losing game. As we saw New York growing with the tech sector, that was because of you know, us being a really attractive place for human capital and all New York's natural advantages, not probably because we had a specific strategy that attracted that, because we've been focusing on a, a lot of things over time. So you're focusing on life science, you know, offshore, wind, the green economy. Why is it better to focus on those sectors rather than generally have a better business climate with lower taxes, lower regulation, better zoning? It's not either or, you gotta do both. And I would contest the point that tech just sort of naturally dropped on us. Um, you know, in 2008, there were very few tech jobs in the city. Um, there were enormous number of initiatives over numerous administrations. There are probably 40 plus accelerators, incubators around tech that EDC has supported over time. EDC helped make the Cornell Tech project happen. Again, these are, you have to plant the seeds, okay? So where are we today? We have 355,000 tech jobs. It's 7% of all jobs in the city and it continues to grow. So how um, do you pick the sectors to focus on? High growth, high wage, um, we look at economic data all the time. We have a we have an economic research and policy arm. Um, we consult with folks like CBC. We look at reports that others are putting out. But if you look at the tech sector more broadly, obviously AI is having a massive impact. You look at the green economy. So it's $25 billion of um, gross city product, economic activity around that today, that's going to grow to 60 billion. That's probably the fastest growing uh, by 2030. You look at life sciences, again, where there's been a multi-administration commitment to it. We're taking it, I think, to a whole new level and trying to figure out New York City's niche vis-a-vis uh, -vis our main competitors, Boston and San Francisco. But I'll just point out on that, and, and DCP and EDC came out with a study a few months ago that showed that the metro area of New York far exceeds the Bay Area or the Boston area in biotech, health tech. Um, so the region is doing phenomenally well. We need a differentiator in New York. We need more commercial um, startups coming out of that, more translational R&D. 
Um, we need to figure out how to harness AI around science. We are focused on all of those things, and we have a few massive projects like the Spark project, which I'm happy to talk yeah, about. Yeah, talk about, I, I, was, I didn't know which, which you want to talk about first, your bat climate innovation or Spark? <laughs> I want to talk about it all. Um, I mean, you know, look, you have to, in economic development, figure out what sectors you're going to focus on, then figure out where your opportunities are from a, from a real estate point of view, um, where there's city land, where there are private sectors that'll partner with you, where there's opportunity to leverage investment alongside, whether it's city, state, federal, or philanthropic. Um, we think the Spark project is a great example of all of that. So when we came into office, the five-acre site of the Hunter Nursing School, really a dilapidated facility, has been for a long time. Uh, the plan was to put a sanitation garage there. We thought we could do better. Um, we unwound 15 years of dysfunction between CUNY, the city, and the state within three months, working with a governor who was focused and economic development professionals there who worked closely with us. Um, and the plan for that site is to bring three CUNY schools, BMCC, a two-year, a brand new Hunter Nursing School and a graduate school in public health moving down from Harlem, all focused on public health careers, a STEM high school focused on public health, and a million square feet of private biotech, and two city agencies focused on public health, and create an ecosystem in the same way we did at the Navy Yard or Industry City, where academia is side by side with commerce, where entrepreneurs can come into the classroom easily, where students can go in to lab space where you can get internships. There is something about co-location. And this is also in a district in Kipps Bay that we think over time will become our Kendall Square. We've got 455, a fantastic project with Taconic right across the street that's gonna be coming out of the ground in the next couple of years. You've got Alexandria, which is an incredible project, is gonna start a new building, their third tower um, in, the, in the coming months. Uh, so there's real dynamism there. 1.6 billion of public investment, if, if I got that right. 1.6 billion of public investment, splitting 50-50 the CUNY investment with the state, and then another six, 600 uh, million on top of that around decrepit city facilities uh, in public health that need to be upgraded. So think OCME, uh, the morgue. Um, they've got a steady demand for space. Um, <laughs> one that will never end, but there, there is important R&D and science that can be done around that. We need a new facility there. And then, and then at least a billion dollars in private investment in the, in the private space. So, and I'll resist getting distracted by the fact that I was closing 455 and moving it to bat when I left city government in, in 2010. <laughs> yeah. And wow. that didn't work. That current building is scary. I went in there. Uh, I, listen, I, I know, and 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 <clears throat> that is tough yeah. to, to fill. We can go back to yeah. bio about. Um, but how do you decide it's worth it? There's a legitimate critique, and of course, CBC has questioned this. You know, every investment you want to get good value, and what we've heard is, <clears throat> as you said before, you know, 40 different incubators doing this. There seems to be over history, a buckshot approach, and then the world gets better and you say, and there's a declaring of victory. And what kind of analysis do you do to decide an investment is worth the dollars, dollars per job, how much you're leveraging, and, and what do you do after the fact to find out was it worth it? As you talked about, you, were, you would argue the IT you know, growth didn't just happen. 
But sometimes we have this self-fulfilling logic that, you know, just do more everywhere all at once and it all works. And that's concerned because, listen, you have a $1 billion um, you know, operating budget. We have tax breaks of $2 billion. That's a lot of money. So we have to make sure it's worth it. What is the analysis? Yeah, so there, there's an enormous amount of analysis on the front end. I mean, first, first is the Economic Research and Policy Group. Is this the right sector? Then there's the actual transaction. And so it helps a lot having people with private sector experience on our side of the table. Uh, we tapped one of your own, Melissa Roman Birch, to lead that uh, effort amongst many other things for us. So we know we have a good handle on how the private sector is thinking about any given deal, how they're thinking about their underwriting. Uh, I think that makes us negotiate a better deal um, and make sure that you get positive impact on the, on the outside. Um, it's again, how are you leveraging other dollars? Um, so you look at a project like the Hunts Point Food Distribution Center, where we're doing close to three quarters of a billion dollar um, new distribution center. 25% of all of our food comes through there every day. It's a decrepit facility with a thousand trucks idling on fossil fuel all day. It's an environmental justice travesty. Um, we've leveraged $110 million of federal money, $130 million of state money. We're gonna leverage $250 million of private investment. Um, we have to do deals like that. Um, and you know, we also have to run through a gauntlet. I think you'd be reassured to know that includes your friends at the Office of Management and Budget to make sure that the return to the city um, is there. So, you know, I'd be happy to dig into any specific economic development project and, and, and go through the, the rationale, the why. Um, but I think, you know, like we go back to the Navy Yard and I, I was um, just saying that, you know, that project 30 years ago, like it was a wasteland. And, you know, just in my time there, we got $250 million of public subsidy, that leveraged a billion dollars of, of private investment. There's been more public subsidies since I left, more private investment. It's a success story. We're gonna do the same thing at the Brooklyn Army Terminal, by the way. Since I know that building, I, I look, forward, look forward to seeing it. So, are there any of our tax breaks that we have now that you think should be stopped. The new New York panel said that you should, if I remember this correctly, revisit and evaluate ICAP and REAP. The state legislature extended two downtown incentives that the Independent Budget Office found were actually not productive. Do you think any of these things that we're doing, these tax expenditures should be um, transformed or eliminated and that would help our business climate? So I'm an economic development guy. I like to have as many tools in the toolbox. You're a budget guy. You're hardwired to want to take my tools away. But we can still be friends. Well, um, hold, hold on a second. I'm, what I'm saying is the question is, what's the highest value use of that tool? Uh, it's a totally fair question. And the New New York um, report, which EDC team wrote most of, um, with a, a lot of outside input from people like Rich Bury and Dan Doktoroff and probably many people in the room, um, did call for an evaluation of that, and we will do that. And we will also be talking to you uh, as we do it, um, because the opinion of the CBC matters a lot. Um, and even when we get a mild pat on the back, like we did for the ferries, it's a big deal for us. So oh, you want that. to talk ferries? That's the next I, I question. I will talk about that. But let me just say, <laughs> before we move from ICAP and REAP, having been an outer borough development guy until now, and it is really fun to be working on a on a citywide level, I have seen the impact. Like a project like Industry City does not happen as fast and well without ICAP. There's a, there's a million square foot commercial building 
in, in um, Long Island City called the Jacks Building. Doesn't happen without ICAP. The Proton Center in Harlem doesn't happen without ICAP. I've seen numerous REAP uh, success stories where companies have relocated outside of Manhattan core and helped drive uh, growth on the, on the Brooklyn waterfront. One other great stat about our recovery, one in seven businesses today started in the last 12 months. That's astonishing. That speaks to the resiliency of our economy, the entrepreneurial nature of our economy. A year and a half ago, if you mapped where those dots were, they were overwhelmingly on the Brooklyn and Queens waterfront. So things are working there, not just in terms of smart development, but some of the economic development programs that have helped assist that over the years. Where you didn't see enough of the dots a year and a half ago was in Midtown and Lower Manhattan because people weren't coming back to work and that was crushing small business. That has improved significantly over the last six months. Ferries. People love them. My daughter loves them. She likes to take it to the beach. But they're highly subsidized transportation mode, certainly filling some transportation deserts and gaps for commuters, no question. But a lot of these are, you know, pleasure trips, you know, that, that aren't necessary, uh, necessarily um, should be subsidized as much as they are. I want to thank you, thank the administration for delinking it from the subway fare, although now it's 10 round trip ticket is now with the subway fare increase is actually cheaper on the ferries and the subway. I think it's uh, 275 or 270 instead of 290. Um, but thanks for delinking it, increasing some costs for single rides. And your new contract seeks to reduce the per trip subsidy by 30%. How are you going to do it? So this is another example, and, and I feel very lucky to be working for this deputy mayor and this mayor right now because um, they are willing to break China and do things differently. And when uh, I arrived at EDC, um, the ferries were viewed as um, a, a sinkhole, to use a bad metaphor, um, and um, we've really turned that around. Um, the mayor rolled out. Uh, a new plan called NYC Ferry Forward. Um, we've taken what was um, one of the highest subsidized per passenger ferry service to one of the lowest. My team would argue the lowest, but I know if I make that statement, I'm going to have a hard time from you later. Um, but we've <laughs> reduced the per passenger subsidy 30%. At the same time, we've increased revenues 45% just in the last year. And that it was part of delinking it from the MTA, saying we can actually charge less for um, New Yorkers who qualify for fair fares, and 10,000 more New Yorkers who live in NYCHA have signed up uh, for ferry service uh, as, a re as a result, so they pay half price. If you are a commuter, and we are still at 275 there, if you buy a 10-pack, so we know you're a real commuter, you'll, you'll stay at that rate, but if you're a one-time rider, uh, a tourist or a New Yorker who just wants to hop on someday, it's going to be $4. And if you want to go sit in the sun and the Rockaways, it's going to be uh, a couple of times that. Um, and so that has begun to turn things around. I think the ferries have become a real anchor. If you look at the innovation coast from Cornell Tech, Long Island City, to Governor's Island, to the Navy Yard, to the Spark Center we're going to build, all the way down to the Brooklyn Army Terminal, one of the great economic development success stories uh, over the last 25 years. That's all linked by our fast ferries. That is not an insignificant part of the equation. So yes, core mission is getting people to work. Two is driving economic impact. Do you, have you guys done, and maybe you don't have it handy, the Rockway rocket. Yeah. Feels like it's burning a hole in our pocket. 
Um, do you know what the what the net subsidy is on, on that? The no subsidy on it anymore. No subsidy. Yeah. So the ten dollar ticket is the ten dollar ride. That's it. Okay, and EDC and prior lives contributed back to the city budget, and in fact, that increased during times of budget cuts, during times of pegs. The mayor's announced pegs. Is there anything in EDC for that? And could ferry fares be some way to both? Increase, decrease the subsidy as well as contribute to the stability of the, of the city? I, we have a long way to go on that, on ferries. Um, and look, every mass transit system is subsidized. I don't even want to tell you what it is uh, for the Long Island Railroad as an example, but yes. it's a heck of a lot more than, than our per passenger subsidy um, or for um, the express bus services. Um, so. All those are good things, and mass transit needs to be subsidized, so that's just a, a reality of life. All cities do that. Um, so Willits Point and Kingsbridge yeah. Armory. Yeah. You're going to bring these over the finish line. We've heard about these for a long time. So let's talk about Willits Point. What are the obstacles left <clears throat> to finish it, and what are the lessons learned? Because this has been a multi-generational, it feels like, project. Yeah, well, this is, again, you know, another example of how we decide where we're going to invest resources and time and, and double down. And in the case of Willits Point, it is, yes, a multi-mayor generational effort uh, to take, um, you know, what is a uh, environmental dystopia, um, you know, 100 years of, of dumping ground for Robert Moses and then 50 years of chop shops uh, and bring it back to life as one of New York's great new communities. So when we got there. A lot of work had been done in the past. Um, there was a plan for a thousand uh, affordable housing units to go up. Um, the mayor's doubled down on that. That's going to be 2,500 units now. Um, and, um, and I'm super excited about this, a, a $750 million privately financed soccer stadium, the world's game and the world's borough. Uh, it's only right. Uh, it is the city's first 100% privately built uh, stadium that is a big big deal so and there's a question on the tax subsidy of that stadium that's been raised on the pilot being um, overly generous so it's kind of a hidden subsidy could you speak a little to that yeah this is what I would say and look you got to have a thick skin in this business but slightly annoying with some of the reporting um, it was written that uh, somehow if we had just left that site and gone out to the private market we would generate half a billion more in, in tax revenues. I mean, that is just mind-boggling, um, to say the least. The notion that the private sector is going to come in and clean up 20 acres deep of environmental degradation uh, and build something on top uh, that is going to generate that kind of tax revenue. Um, in theory, you might say you would do the most luxury housing ever um, on that site, but that's a joke. That's not what the community wants. It's not appropriate for that site. And by the way, I don't think those apartments are going to sell. So instead, we have some private sector partners in NYCFC that want to come in and spend $750 million of their own money to build a new stadium that will be complementary to the other sports facilities there, the Mets Stadium, the USTA. You look at other well-planned cities, they have these facilities clustered. There's a real jobs opportunity. This is complemented by a lot of the investment we've made in Flushing, downtown Flushing, which is just a short walk from Willits, which is booming. 
There's great transportation infrastructure there. And on top of this, we're going to build the largest 100% affordable project for housing in 40 years in New York. That's a win. Speaking of housing, before we open up for questions, so I'm scrolling through, you know, on the way here early this morning, and of course, I see that we can submit questions for your next, for Cranes. So anything he's ducked here, you can just submit to Cranes. I'm going to, right after her, I got some stuff. He's saying I'm overexposed? Um, no, I, I think you look beautiful. Um, but right above that was, I don't know if it's right to say, one of your mentors, Dan Dokhtroff, um, who you've worked with, saying that affordable housing is the linchpin to New York's turnaround. What is EDC doing, and can New York City do what it needs to do, given the lack of movement in Albany? It is very, very difficult to reach the goals that we all know need to be reached um, without cooperation from the state legislature. I think the governor had a brilliant proposal uh, to bring real density to uh, our suburban transit hubs on the LIRR and Metro North stops. It is stunning um, that uh, the legislature turns their back on that. We are getting lapped by other states, California, New Jersey, um, that are recognizing that you have to have uh, density around suburban transit locations. Um, that said, the mayor and the governor are both acting unilaterally wherever they can while we wait for um, the powers that be uh, get to the right place uh, on some of these macro deals that we need, like a new 421A program as an example. Um, so uh, we're very focused on it uh, at EDC, collaborating with our partners at HPD and HDC wherever we can. Um, we uh, are going to have an RFP out as an example um, on the north shore of Staten Island. Uh, tremendous opportunity. In fact, there's going to be a whole north shore Staten Island plan rolled out in the coming days. And um, uh, we're going to be looking to find um, a developer that will build right on the waterfront. Uh, essentially, we'll create a synthetic 421A by giving up more value on the land. Um, than we might have because there is no 421A in no, order to sorry, essentially cross. What does it mean, give up more value on land? Uh, just you know, essentially through um, rent and pilot, um, structure a deal in which uh, a housing developer might come in and do something that looks like a 70-30 um, project. Um, but, you know, that's not ideal for us uh, in a perfect world. So, But we need housing desperately everywhere we can get it. And as I let people think about questions, you mentioned Staten Island. Perfect example is, I don't know if the, if the Ferris wheel's half built and whatever the mall was. This is an example, which is why, you know, CBC will continue to ask, like, hold on, which of these, act, which of these are we going to sit back in 10 years and say, you know, we were sold, a, you know, not a false bill of goods. So that, that yep. seems a little uh, whatever. But we have a lot of projects that sit there, sit there for a long time. Some get brought to fruition, hopefully Willits. We'll see about the Kingsbridge Armory. Yep. You have a menu and $200 million, and hopefully you can make something of it. Um, but we also know that a lot of these things don't happen. Um, so it's challenging. F um, fair, fair enough. And I would say uh, we have shown um, that where a project is not successful, we are not afraid to pull the Band-Aid off. And we did that by ending that deal. We ended that deal. We ended the hockey rink deal in Kingsbridge Armory just in the last two years. And so 
we are taking a fresh look at these assets and figuring out what we can do. Um, letting the Kingsbridge Armory just sit there for another 30 years, um, not being used is, is, not a, uh, is not something that I'm interested in. So I'm willing to take the risk. And I think what's different there now is that we had a nine-month consultative process with the community to really get buy-in. We spoke to 4,000 folks. We had labor at the table. And we had subsidy locked in on the front end. Both of those last two deals that failed did not have that. And you need that on that kind of historic building. It's just like the Navy Yard to me, a smaller version. You know, you've got to have the confidence in the private sector that government's going to be there alongside you, at least at the beginning, to leverage your investment uh, and make it work. So we're hopeful, and we're also hopeful on the wheel site. We're going to find somebody uh, that's going to bring um, a, a deal there that will work. So we're going to be putting that site out back out on the market soon. Let's grab some questions uh, from our yeah. trustees and others. Uh, let's see. Any questions? I will look. It's a quiet group. I can't even see whose hand is up there. Um, so we'll go back there, and you know, my, as soon as I get my new glasses, and then we'll go and mic. Hi. Good morning, Sharon Lee oh, with Icor Strategies. Good to see you, Andrew. Andrew, um, and thank you again. Uh, you know, Icor Strategies. We're actually uh, our headquarters are based in Industry City since 2017, and. Um, as the largest black-owned professional services firm in the nation, uh, we can certainly attest um, a lot of our growth, uh, enjoyed a lot of growth over the last several years as a, as a tenant, um, and that's certainly not independent of our location, so thank you. Um, you've mentioned a lot of very exciting capital projects uh, all throughout the city, and in particular outside of Manhattan. Is there a project that you have not mentioned uh, with us this morning? that you're particularly excited about that we should get excited about? Uh, wow. I mean, there are lots of projects, but since you took my mind to Industry City, I'll talk about the project right across the street um, from it, uh, where um, EDC, um, with a relatively small public investment, is leveraging billions of dollars of private investment over the next 10 years in the offshore wind industry. Uh, by partnering with Equinor, the former national oil and gas company of Norway that converted to renewables 25 years ago. They are one of numerous major uh, offshore wind companies that are getting in the game. Um, this is an industry that was created essentially out of whole cloth. Again, Europe way ahead of us, but you know, 10 years ago, nobody could have thought that there was an opportunity around offshore wind to drive tens of thousands of new jobs in New York City. That site will be the largest uh, offshore wind servicing port um, in the United States. Um, we are very focused on offshore wind on Staten Island. We're on the west shore of Staten Island, where you have acres and acres and acres, hundreds of them that are industrial dystopia. Uh, we have a unique opportunity, if things break our way, to bring large-scale manufacturing there, whether it's blades or turbines or nacelles, which are the engines that drive the turbines, or cables. Um, Arthur Kill Terminal, project still in planning, but outside the city's bridges to create another servicing port because the offshore wind industry isn't going away. There are going to be tens of thousands of offshore wind poles that go up along the east coast, really the Saudi Arabia of, of wind. Um, and uh, they're going to need, they're going to get bigger and bigger. They're going to, they're going to go from going into the ground 130 feet under the water to be floating on platforms. You need 
bigger equipment and being outside the bridges will help, which is why we think that site will work. And does any of the cost increases or reliability issues give you pause? Uh, definitely give pause, and there are very serious conversations happening right now at the PSC, and NYSERDA is very involved, and um, we hope there's a constructive outcome there. Um, just like every other industry, this one's been hit hard by the cost of construction. Um, so they're going to need to be some, some adjustments, no doubt, um, to make this industry work. But it is here for the long term, um, and thanks to young people mostly, um, the very aggressive um, benchmarks for getting us off of fossil fuels that the state legislature has passed and, and the city has put in place are really driving uh, this industry. That's why we think around the green economy by 2030, it's going to be $60 billion of economic activity every year. And I'll just say also, and I, I just want to talk about workforce development and equity for a second, because to us, there, there are three main prongs. There's There's driving opportunity through better linkages with um, DOE and CUNY. We've got to get this right, and the Spark Campus is one of those opportunities around biotech, offshore wind. We're working with six different CUNY schools, a number of high schools. The Harbor School is just an amazing, amazing institution. You guys got to check it out. A bunch of our captains on our ferry service come out of the Harbor School. Um, it is place-based, our, our uh, workforce development strategy, around our projects, partnering uh, with not-for-profits. And then it's also sector-based with regional hubs. And later this fall, we'll be opening up um, Civic Hall on 14th Street, 80,000 square feet of tech training um, for the industries of the future. And that's going to be replicated in other boroughs over time. Mike. Uh, Andrew, what would you say to somebody who is looking at uh, Kingsbridge as an opportunity to come in um, and saw what happened and in terms of the community backlash that happened for the proposals that were on the table, what would you say to an entity coming in because of the challenges of Euler, because of the challenges <coughs> of people feeling left out, not included, what kind of uh, outreach should they be doing and how would you advise them? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say read the vision plan. So the vision plan has been released. That will also be attached to the RFP. And that's where that engagement that included 4,000 local folks with hours and hours and hours on weekends over nine months. Um, if you read it, it's very clear um, they want industry with a growth trajectory. Of course, they want access to local jobs, but they want an economically viable project. Um, what I would also say is that it's a very unique facility, um, unique in that it's a landmark, unique in that it hasn't seen any investments. That's partly why you need some public subsidy to cross-subsidize. But it's also unique in that it's got a drill hall that's the largest in the United States. It's four football fields long. It's a 100-foot um, high ceiling clear span, column free. Um, so you can do a lot of interesting things in there. Uh, it also has several floors below. Um, it has old auditoriums. It has old basketball courts. Um, there's a lot of uh, environmental damage that needs to be cleaned up. But again, that's why the public subsidy has to be alongside. So I think there are real opportunities there in the green economy, um, in advanced manufacturing, I think in film and television, where there have been lots of film shoots there. Um, I'll just say film and television remains a very important sector. One of the reasons we didn't pass a million jobs back in the last 
monthly reporting cycle was because of the strike, but that will pass. We just did a fantastic economic development deal uh, with Vornado, Hudson Pacific, and Blackstone on Pier 94, taking a decrepit pier where we're going to invest $50 million in the piles, and that's going to leverage $350 million of private investment. That's a great economic development deal. And there's no reason things like that can't happen at the Kingsbridge Armory. Um, there was someone back there who I can't see behind someone else. Arthur, Rosen. Arthur, Art, how you doing? Good, thank you. I'm thinking about the migrant uh, crisis and wondering whether there is a role for EDC, and if so, what it is. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I first of all, I would say just personal commentary. I know it's going to sound biased, but um, I, I think people in this room can appreciate the fact that. You know, this city has absorbed 100,000 migrants. Like, how much has it impacted each of your daily lives? It is astonishing, I think, how well this administration has responded to this crisis. Uh, and it doesn't get a lot of credit for that. Um, the reality, though, is that it is super expensive. Um, and when we're putting up, um, you know, families with children, mothers with children, and hotel rooms and paying $350 a night, um, that's a challenge financially, and that now looks like a $18 billion budget hole, which is what the mayor and budget director just highlighted, and that's going to require uh, a series of 5% um, pegs, um, probably totaling up to close to 15% over time. Um, that's going to have real impacts on the operations of core agencies. Fortunately, EDC's revenues uh, don't come from city tax levy. We manage 64 million square feet of space in the city. Um, but uh, it's going to impact us, and it could impact our economic development projects. And there could be a moment in time in which the city's taking a look at the capital budget, which is obviously critical um, to our success. We, outside of all the economic development projects I've mentioned, we have a $9 billion capital budget. We're building the greenways in the city. We're building, if you've driven up the FDR, the, the new bike and pedestrian bridge, essentially, um, in the 50s and 60s, which is going to be an incredible new amenity uh, for Manhattan and drive economic development, by the way. Um, what are we doing today? We're doing a lot, actually, uh, in supporting DCAS on the real estate front and finding HERCs, locations where um, the asylum seekers can, can be. Redney's been a great a partner and supporter in this. Um, Hall Street is an example. Recently, um, Hall Street right across from the Navy Yard uh, that was sitting vacant and through a deal structured with the EDC that now has asylum seekers housed in there temporarily. So there's going to be more of that. Um, I don't know all the answers. I mean, this is a challenge. 10,000 migrants coming every month. Um, so obviously, this is, a, this is a problem that needs a national strategy um, and certainly needs a lot more support from the federal and state level. And you raise an interesting question. EDC has historically been utilized by administrations because it has both the competence and the regulatory freedom to get something things done quicker and better on the contract. How much of, of, of EDC's work these days is, is just facilitating um, things for the core city that it can't do itself as well as it should be able to? I mean, there are, there are contracts that we can expedite um, that lead to studies uh, that lead to certain services that can be done faster through ED, EDC. I mean, are there lessons to be learned where we should reform our contracting for the regular government? It's a, it's a continuous question, and you're sitting in the seat. Uh, 
there, there, there are, um, but I'm not sure I can expound on that too effectively right now. But um, does that become a significant distraction for us? Um, certainly in COVID, everything at EDC stopped, um, and we were focused on everything COVID-related, um, and that, you know, everything in the economy kind of stopped. There were no more development projects for a while. Um, so we're now back to um, running, I would say, at, at full pace, um, and uh, hopefully we don't get distracted too much. One more t question time for if we have one. Yes, sir. Good morning, I'm calling KKR. Just wanted to ask you, uh, not that I have a horse in the game here or am a gambler, but about the casino opportunity and your views on economic development around not just the tax, tax base that it would bring in, the jobs would create, additional hotel rooms, et cetera, but views from kind of you and your organization on that aspect of development. I mean, um, we are very careful to be agnostic on sites and, and specific proposals. Um, obviously, this is something, it's a, it's a state-run project wholly. Obviously, you've got to run through a lot of hoops at the local level in terms of support, and you'll see that playing out you know, over the next 12, 24 months. Um, there is obviously an enormous amount of positive economic impact that can happen. Uh, in terms of hotel rooms, in terms of tax revenues. Um, the state is already counting on a lot of that tax revenue coming into its existing budgets and plans. Um, so, uh, look, it becomes, it becomes another tool um, in, in the broader economic development game. Well, Andrew, thank you very much for taking your time.